You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, fellow Constantines. Before we get rolling with today's story, I wanted to let you know that this is the final episode of season three and the final regular episode for a while. Don't panic, the show's not ending, but it is changing. There'll be a handful more episodes scattered throughout the rest of the year, but... Well, this isn't the time for this. For now, just enjoy this episode, and then stick around through the end. I'll explain things then. Here's a story you know. A young doctor, driven by hubris and obsession, creates a monster, animated by electricity. Shocked by his deed, he flees the creature, which baits him with a trail of death, trying to persuade the doctor to create for him a companion. When the doctor chickens out and destroys his would-be bride, the monster promises revenge on his creator's wedding night. After delivering on that promise and murdering the doctor's bride-to-be in turn, the two, father and son, inventor and invented, embark upon a protracted chase into the Arctic, where, after a sick stay on an icebreaker, the doctor succumbs to the cold and his creature, in mourning, resolves finally to die himself, disappearing into the night. The End And here's a story you might know. Some esteemed writers, including Lord Byron and Percy Shelley and Percy's lover, are held up for a dark, cold, rainy time in Switzerland. In their late-night talks, they turn to the subject of galvanism, spooking one another with the mysterious new sciences of the day. One of the men offers a wager, the winner of which will be them that creates the scariest story. The contributions of Byron and Percy to this bet are fine, but they're barely side stories, because... The young lover invents the winning tale, and with it the genre of science fiction, the exemplification of gothic horror, and the path for women to be read as serious literature. Or maybe you know a different version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Maybe you're more acquainted with the film versions, where the doctor's harmless invention creates an unquenchable, fearful panic. This is not any of those stories. But it is the story of a different invention, born of the same circumstances as Shelley's masterpiece. An invention that, like the creature, was the cause of much undue dread and paranoia. An invention that, even more than Shelley's book, became an icon of women's empowerment. An invention that changed the world. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Diabolical Devices of the Demon of Darkness. Hey 
here's the story you might not know. It was a dark and stormy night when Mary and Percy and Byron held up for this scare contest. There'd been a lot of dark and stormy ones. And cold, too. Really, really cold. The year is 1816, which is bar none the year with the best nicknames ever. The year without a summer tends to get top billing, but if you ask me, the best one is 1800 and froze to death. In April of 1815, the previous year, Mount Tambora erupted in Indonesia. Tambora's eruption rates a 7 out of 8 on the Volcano Explosivity Index, which is for real what the rating scale is called. For your information, an 8 is almost unheard of. The last eruption of the Yellowstone supervolcano would be an 8. An 8 changes the world irrevocably. So outside of near apocalypse, 7 is really as high as it gets. As it stands, there hasn't been another 7 since Tambora. That's more than 200 years ago. The last 7 before Tambora was more than 400 years previous. The ash that Tambora threw into the stratosphere greatly reduced temperatures around the world. In May of 1816, fields were frosted throughout New England. In July, rivers were still frozen in Pennsylvania. In Italy, red snow fell all the way into midsummer. The cold broke away the monsoon season in China, which led to flooding throughout the Yangtze Valley. Cholera bloomed throughout Asia from India to Russia. The bad weather drove Americans out of their homes, prompting the first round of westward expansion, the settlement of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan by Europeans. It was in this cold, wet, dark atmosphere that Mary Shelley and co. were driven indoors, driven to boredom, driven to competition, driven to writing. Or, as Lord Byron put it in his entry to the competition, darkness, I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came and brought no day. But again, and I'm saying this as much to myself as to you, we're not here for the story of Frankenstein. We're here for the other story. During the year without a summer, crops failed almost everywhere but Europe was especially badly hit. At least 200,000 Europeans starved to death. There were riots, civil unrest. Germany had it particularly bad, with not only crop failures, but massive flooding along the Rhine. Germany's oat harvest was decimated, and that meant that a large portion of Germany's horses were decimated too. Starved to death. And that's sad. Let's not stop to think about how sad that... Oh, it's too late. Oh no, those poor horses. All right, okay, pull it together. For the Germans of 1816, losing all their horses, power through it, everybody, losing all those horses wasn't just a sentimental matter, but a very practical one. Horses were laborers, horses were plows, and, most importantly, horses were conveyance. The thing about the early 19th century was that there were basically only two ways to get anywhere. You either had to walk or ride a horse. And since there were suddenly very few horses around, keep going, don't look back, Carl Drace, a civil servant but also a tireless inventor, came up with a way to pick up the slack. In 1817, he unveiled what he termed the Loth machine, or running machine. The Loth machine looked like a long plank suspended by two wheels at its ends and a seat in the middle with handles at the... 
Ah, I forget. It looked like a bike. That's what it looked like. It looked like a bike because that's pretty much what it was. Carl Drace invented the bicycle. Ta-da! Surprise ruined. The story we're here for today is the story of the bike. Well, wait, no. I'm getting ahead of myself. The loft machine was very bike-like. If you look at one now, it'll seem more familiar than a lot of the later versions that came out throughout the 19th century. But there are some notable differences. For one, the body was made of wood, and the wheels were thick metal, no rubber, no tires of any sort. But the main non-bikeish feature was its lack of pedals. To ride the thing, which was also called a dryzine or a velocipede, by the way, leave it to the 19th century to name a thing a half dozen times over, the rider would sit upon the seat and kick the ground in a sort of floaty run. Who it was that had the bright idea to add pedals is a matter of hot debate. It could have been a Scotsman named Macmillan in 1839, or a Scotsman named Dalzell in 1845, or a Scotsman named McCall. It's a lot of Scots would like the credit. But it's the French who tend to get it. In 1863, an unnamed metal worker took one of the velocipedes and added cranks and pedals to the front wheel, and ta-da! Notice, front wheel. The bicycles of the 1860s were propelled from the front, and that, along with the weight and the metal wheels, made the things slow and hard to steer and very uncomfortable to ride. Throughout the English-speaking world, these early bikes were usually known as bone shakers. Between these limitations and their high cost, the pedal-powered velocipedes had a pretty limited market, and the next attempt to right those problems was... ridiculous. The Ordinary Bicycle, better known as the Penny Farthing. You've seen these in movies, cartoons, or museums, with one tiny wheel in the back followed by a huge wheel in the front, four or even five feet tall. And at the tippy-tip top of that monstrous wheel, a tiny little seat and handlebars. The penny farthing was, in some ways, an improvement upon the velocipede. Because the pedals were still locked to the front wheel, a larger wheel meant it could move much faster. The barely-there frame and wire-spoked wheels made it quite a bit lighter than its predecessor, too. And tires! My god, rubber tires! Yes, in many ways, the penny farthing was an improvement. Except for how ridiculously impractical and unsafe the thing was. Any little bump in the road or upset in balance could and would send the rider flying over the front of the thing head first. And there were no brakes. How could there be? Because you had to dismount it from the height of a pony while rolling. The ordinary bike, too, was confined to the realm of the expensive novelty. A daredevil machine for well-to-do young men with little care for the safety of themselves or others and a great desire to stand out. The hipster set of the Victorian age. And then, finally, in 1885, came the safety bicycle, or Rover, invented by John Kemp Starley. The safety bike is, for all intents and purposes, the bike of today. Front and rear wheels of the same size, chain-driven rear-wheel pedals, pump brakes, spring suspension, all the fixings. It would have made Starley stinking rich had he remembered to patent it. Instead, countless copycats flooded the market almost instantaneously. Almost anyone could ride a safety bike, and almost anyone could turn one, too, and stop when they needed to. You know, the little things. Whereas Velocipede and Penny Farthing makers had sold tens of thousands, there were soon millions of safety bikes. And that is when people started to really freak out. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. First, there were the news reports. Excessive bicycle riding is given as the cause of death of Miss May Brewer, a young teacher in the high school here, who died last night. Which came almost daily in every major paper across the country. A rather serious cycling accident, which will perhaps serve as a caution to the many ladies and youths who ride on their bicycles through the busy streets of the city, occurred on Thursday. And then came the editorials. The thousands of young men and women joining the host of desecrators betrayed by the allurements of a Sunday wheeling is alarming. Unfavorable comparisons to horses, which you'll recall the bike was invented to make up for a shortage of, were all over the place. A bicycle is dangerous not when it is in motion, but when it is at rest. It is then that it throws its rider and tramples on him with a viciousness that the depraved horse would be ashamed to exhibit. I consider the bicycle to be the most dangerous thing to life and property ever invented. The gentlest of horses are afraid of it. Or comparisons to the devil himself. These bladder-wheeled bicycles are diabolical devices of the demon of darkness. They are contrivances to trap the feet of the unwary and skin the nose of the innocent. They are full of guile and deceit. When you think you have broken one to ride and subdued its wild and satanic nature, behold, it bucketh you off in the road and teareth a great hole in your pants. Look not on the bike when it bloweth upon its wheels, for at last it bucketh like a bronco and hurteth like thunder. Who has skin legs? Who has a bloody nose? Who has ripped breeches? They that dally along with the bicycle. The concerns about injuries were front and center in the press, but they were hardly the only complaints. The Boston Evening Transcript ran a piece pleading with all good Bostonians to band together to put an end to the nuisance of ringing bike bells. The New York Times reported that publishers were afraid that bicycles would soon put an end to the reading of books. And then there was the religious angle. Bike riding was considered a serious threat to the Fourth Commandment. That is, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Clergy and laymen alike were concerned about the many bicyclists who were mortally sinning by going for sacrilegious two-wheeled romps on Sundays. At least twice, the Catholic Defender published the Lord's Day Bicycle Pledge. I promise that I will not use the bicycle on Sundays to attend meets, runs, or races, nor for mere pleasure riding, nor in such a way as to interfere with public quiet, personal rest, and divine worship. So. That is safety and morality taken care of. What about health, you ask? Oh my, what about it? While plenty of physicians thought bicycles might make for good exercise, there was a dissenting view at the time that maybe exercise, in general, was bad for you. Perhaps one had only a finite amount of energy to spend, or breaths to take, or pulses to beat, And if that were true, the rigorous exertion of bicycling was speeding riders headlong to their demise. 
Sidebar, uh, did you know that this view of exercise, already a minority opinion in the 1880s, is reportedly held by the current president of the United States? Yeah, yeah, Google that the next time you're somewhere where it's safe to scream. For those who admitted the benefits of exercise, the bike was still suspect. Of particular concern was something called scorching, which near as I can tell meant riding fast. Scorchers were of concern to police and chambers of commerce because of safety concerns, sure. But the feared medical effects were much more interesting. Here's Dr. S.C. Stanton, who was the army physician in charge of physical examinations of new recruits for the Chicago area in 1898. The persistent scorching, or fast writing, has a tendency to enlarge the heart and thus interfere with its proper action. Few enthusiastic bicyclists can resist the temptation to scorch. Owing to this completely untested and ludicrous hypothesis, Dr. Stanton issued a directive that all, quote, habitual scorchers be rejected as physically unfit to serve in the armed forces. Then there's Dr. A. Shadwell, who wrote an article for the National Review in 1897 entitled The Hidden Dangers of Cycling. Shadwell makes Stanton look downright sober-minded. He stitches together a patchwork of anecdotal reporting to make the case for a hidden bicycle-borne disease, a rider who had appendicitis, another with a goiter, still others with headaches or exhaustion. No coincidence to be found in these totally random reports, concluded Shadwell. The bike was to blame. He went further, though, than drawing causatory lines between unrelated medical problems. Shadwell argued that bike riding causes deep psychiatric crises that the tiredness that comes with riding too far is not just overexertion, but a deep psychic injury that may result in permanent psychosis, hallucinations, and delirium. Okay, so where were we on our Frankenstein parallels? Born from 1800 and froze to death, check. Undue public hysteria, double check. Oh, right, what about the role of women? If you read Shadwell's full editorial, and I do not recommend that because it is long and boring, you'll notice that a curious bulk of his concern is aimed at female riders, even as most of his, again, bad examples of this bicycle syndrome deal with males. He's not an outlier in this. While a number of the health, safety, and religious concerns about bikes were non-gendered, a strong plurality of the pearl clutching had to do with women. Anyone surprised? I doubt it. None of this is very much surprising. Over the course of just 10 or 15 years, people saw this striking change in their roads, streets, and parks. For centuries, there had been pedestrians and horses. That's it. Suddenly, things looked different. There were bells ringing and cyclists yelling back and forth to one another. There were new rhythms, new hazards, new obstacles. That makes for prime panic territory. But of all these changes, the largest had to do with women. Before the bicycle, women were essentially at the mercy of men to go anywhere. If they wanted to cross any sort of distance, they needed a carriage or buggy, which had to be manned, hey, it's right there in the word, had to be manned by some sort of invariably male driver. A woman could walk down the street in theory, but generally she was not to do so alone and best to be accompanied by a man. The bike changed that. With the safety bicycle roughly equally available to men and women, the latter was no longer dependent on the former to get around. 
of the many, many, I stress many, accident reports that festooned the papers, most of them had to do with female riders. Even cycling advocates who fought back against the mischaracterization of their hobby were happy to throw women under the proverbial bus in order to make their argument. Take this paragraph from a fiery defense of bikes in Cycling Magazine. After riding bicycle to town each day, the writer feels convinced that, in many cases, the parents are to blame for allowing young girls to ride through the traffic. Probably the bicycle has been purchased for the young lady on her representation to Papa that she can ride to business and save the fares. However this may be, many of the young girls we pass on our way to town appear quite unfitted for the task of dodging the traffic, and their parents, if they have respect for life and limb, should insist on their cycles being used in the country lanes for recreation only. In addition to the bevy of aforementioned health concerns, women were cautioned against several unique feminine ailments, including bicycle face. One more time. Bicycle face. Our buddy Shadwell claims to have coined the term, although some point to British doctor, eugenicist, uh, bookmark that term for the future, and early anti-feminist Arabella Keneally instead. What precisely bicycle face entailed, as well as its precise cause and severity, were open questions. Some thought it had to do with the unconscious effort of maintaining balance. Others said it was the speed of the wind upon the face or the strain on the eyes, the stress of the overexertion. The symptoms varied, too. Flushing of the face, or else paling. Pursing of the lips, or else drawing them out. Squinting of the eyes, or else bulging. A patina of weariness, unless excitement. The duration or course of the condition was also a matter of dispute. Some physicians felt that, given enough time at rest, removed from the offending bicycle, recovery from bicycle face was possible. Most were less optimistic. Once a bicycle face, always a bicycle face. I like saying bicycle face. (laughs) Bicycle face, bicycle face, bicycle face. I think it sounds like the name of a bottom drawer supervillain for The Flash, and I appreciate that. Anyway... Bicycle face was not seen as an exclusively female condition. Men could be affected too, although much more rarely. But the concern, the scare, the abandon all hope of bicycle face was clearly meant for young women. Ride that bike of yours and risk being made too ugly to find a man. And that perhaps gets to the ulterior motive of the issue. The women of the 1890s were changing. They called themselves new women. Some of them had jobs. Some of them read books, like Frankenstein, which some of them also wrote, like Frankenstein. Some of them were talking about voting. Some of them were talking about limiting the rights of husbands and fathers to control and beat them. Their clothing was changing. Dresses were getting smaller and less feminine, or, were still, being replaced by bloomers, all so they could ride these infernal bicycles. They were going around unaccompanied, or in groups, which who knows what they might be doing, alone together in shady far corners of woods, excited by the banana seats of their rumbling bicycles. Oh yes, it was a sex thing too. Oh golly was it ever. From nearly the jump, men looked upon women riding bikes and fearfully wondered, could they be getting pleasure from this? A number of women's bicycle seats were invented. 
Some had holes in the center or were concave or were otherwise tapered or smoothed or ribbed or incomplete, all with the goal in mind of making it impossible for women to ride their bikes straight onto the avenues of sexual deviancy. Think of it. If a woman were to accidentally orgasm near a man, she would certainly fall hopelessly into a world of impossible and unquenchable sexual craving. And if it were to happen in the company of another woman, it was too scandalous to even think about. As the president of the Women's Rescue League, Charlotte Smith, put it, I do not object to old women riding or to an entire family going out together on bicycles. What I am fighting against is girls who are just reaching womanhood, riding out alone. It undoubtedly leads to immorality and has been the ruin of many girls. Mind, I don't say that the attitude is immodest or the dress improper. Probably she actually did. I know, however, that in bicycling there is a grave danger to the morals of young girls. Many fallen women have told me that their downfall dated from their very first bicycle ride. All right, let's bullet point this real quick. Copious news stories about bike accidents. Editorials about the social degradation they bring religious uproar, huge quantities of scary medical hokum, social backlash against women riding. What the hell is all this? The typical terrified reaction to changing times? Regular old misogyny on the march? Fine, yes, on both counts. But the bicycle hysteria of the late 19th and early 20th centuries represents something bigger yet more specific. And the fact that I've made it this many episodes without introducing this term before is a miracle of self-restraint on my part. This is what we call a moral panic. And I could talk about moral panics all day. The phrase goes back to either semiotician Marshall McLuhan or sociologist Stanley Cohen. It's generally defined as the process of arousing social concern over an issue, usually the work of moral entrepreneurs and the mass media. Witch hunts, the Red Scare, switchblades, oh, I could list so many more, but I am attempting to keep some of them in reserve for future episodes. Generally, the criteria for a moral panic are considered concern that the subject is deleterious to society, hostility towards the subjects or groups associated therewith, consensus formed around the issue by a socially or economically powerful group, disproportion in the sense of the threat of the subject, and finally, volatility, meaning that the public interest tends to explode and then dissolve very quickly as the fickle fear moves on to other things. That last one is important because it's very rare to see moral panics that have any real sticking power. That's certainly true of the bike panic. For all the screaming and scolding, women continued to take to bikes like fish to water. They shed petticoats, corsets, and long dresses in favor of short skirts, bloomers, and blouses, in large part because of the demands of bicycle riding. The arrival of the new woman, more independent, modernly dressed, and less deferential to male authority, coincided directly with the rise of the bicycle. Eventually, even the press began to fight back against the ridiculousness. An 1896 editorial in the Chicago Daily News had this to say, when a woman wants to learn anything, or do anything useful, or even have any fun, there is always someone to solemnly warn her that it is her duty to keep well. Meanwhile, in many states, she can work in factories 10 hours a day. 
She can stand behind counters in badly ventilated stores from 8 o'clock to 6. She can bend over the sewing machine for about 5 cents an hour, and no one cares enough to protest. But when the same women, condemned to sedentary lives indoors, find a cheap and delightful way of getting the fresh air and exercise they need so sorely, there is a great hue and cry about their physical health. The bicycle became the main means of transit for these new women. And where did they go? Well, they went to parties and parks. They went shopping and to the theater. They did all the things men had long had the liberty to do. But they also went to two other important kinds of events, meetings and protests. In London, a group of protesters made a blockade of the central police station out of their bicycles. In America, suffragettes marched all across the country demanding the vote, and with them at nearly every event, their bikes, ridden or carried alongside the lines. Then there was Annie Cohen Kopchovsky. In 1894, a Harvard student named E.C. Pfeiffer took a 5,000 bet that he could cycle around the world in less than a year. The world watched with anticipation for two weeks until it was discovered that he had been faking the whole trip. Later that year, Dr. Albert Reeder of Boston, along with a friend, made a public wager of $20,000 that no woman could travel around the world in less than 15 months. It was not considered a serious bet, really. It wasn't clear that anyone could circumnavigate the globe by bicycle in that time, much less a woman. But Annie Kopchovsky, a Jewish-Latvian immigrant and mother of three, said, Watch me. Before setting off... Annie had never ridden a bicycle at all, but that didn't stop her. She changed her name to Annie Londonderry after her corporate sponsor, Londonderry Alithia Spring Water Company, who paid her a hundred bucks, and set off from the Massachusetts State House on July 27, 1894, with a change of clothes and a pearl-handled pistol. Annie Londonderry started west in full dress. She reached Chicago in late September where she traded to a new bike and bloomers. Later, she changed out the bloomers for a men's riding suit. In Chicago, she realized there was no way she could make it to the West Coast ahead of winter. It looked like she was going to lose the bet before it even got serious. But Annie wasn't going down without a fight. She decided to turn around, head east, and circumnavigate all the way around back to Chicago again, with only 11 months ahead of her. She made New York City on November 24th and boarded a steam liner to France. On landing, her bike and money were confiscated by customs, while French newspapers wrote about her, quote, mannish and dirty appearance. But she pressed on, got her bike back, and headed off from Paris to Marseille with one injured and bandaged foot riding on her handlebars. From Marseille, she hit North Africa, cycling through Alexandria and Colombo, then through China, Vietnam, and Japan. She left Yokohama on March 9th by sail, reaching San Francisco on the 23rd. Then she rode to L.A., Arizona, New Mexico. She made Denver on August 12th. She crashed into a drift of pigs. Yes, a drift. That is what you call a group of pigs. She crashed into a drift of pigs in Iowa and broke her wrist, but continued on wearing a plaster cast. On September 12th, 1895, Annie Londonderry arrived back in Chicago. 14 days ahead of the deadline. She returned briefly to Boston with her husband and children, 
before uprooting them to become a journalist in New York. Her first article was about her amazing journey. It began, I'm a journalist and a new woman, if that term means that I believe I can do anything that any man can do. Suffrage would take longer than Londonderry's trip. And equal rights, well, ugh. Well, let's just have a moment of triumph, can we? It took decades of hard work, protest, arguing, and legislating to finally deliver women the vote. But when it came, it came by bicycle. Special thanks today to our voice talent, Sarah Rachel Scholl, Spencer Davis, Tim Racine, Spen- um, hold- Spencer Mary Racine, Take three. Um, Vance Smith. Take, what are we for? Sorry, do you mind if I start again? So, uh, sp- um, Ann Sonneville. Phil Ritarelli. Uh, and I believe you wanted my name. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Heather Chrysler. That's wrong. <clears throat> Take five. Uh, Spencer Davis. Kelsey Colleen Melvin. Before we get to the sign-off, let me talk a little about that announcement at the top. So, here's the deal. I started this show basically on a whim. I bought a cheap microphone, tacked some blankets up around my closet, built a crappy, free website, and started working. It didn't matter if things were a little rinky-dink, because I figured a couple dozen friends and family might listen in. Now, eight months later, there are thousands of you, all over the world, who choose to make my weird little show a part of your weekly life, which is... It's very hard to describe how that feels. I'm proud and humbled and incredulous all at once. But none of that really gets to it. Kurt Vonnegut once said something about the nature of art that stuck firmly to my ribs. Asking himself why we write stories, he said, Still in all, why bother? Here's my answer. Many people need desperately to receive this message. I feel and think much as you do care about many of the things you care about, although most people don't care about them. You are not alone. Seeing the number of people listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing this show is validating to me, not just in terms of the show itself, but in terms of my person. Anyway, I'm getting too sappy here. The point is, I love making this show for y'all. Since December, I've dropped 27 episodes, nearly 10 hours of content, produced in a closet on a seven-year-old MacBook almost entirely by myself in my free time for basically free. I'm really proud of that. But it's also completely absurd, totally unsustainable. So I'm taking a break, not from making the show, but from making it this way. For the next couple of months, I'll be retooling the constant to see if I can turn it into a more professional endeavor. That means graphic and web designers, music licenses, advertising, fundraising, a whole lot of stuff. If you want to help keep this show going and growing, make sure you're subscribed. There'll be at least a handful of special episodes during this process, and a couple of them I'm very excited about making. Please go rate and review if you can. Tell folks about it. Go back and give a listen to older episodes you might have missed. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, all that good stuff. I'm really excited about the future. For new microphones and websites, sure, but also for all the stories I've got planned. So, stick with me. 
I'll be back soon. And thank you for your support and for listening. Let's end with Eliza Jane, the 1895 smash hit song about silly bicycle riding women, reconstructed for us by the inimitable Matt Test. Eliza Jane, she had a wheel, its rim was painted red. Eliza had another wheel that turned inside her head. She put the two together and she gave them both a twirl. And now she rides the Parkland sides, a 20th century girl. Oh, have you seen Eliza Jane a-cycling through the park? Have you seen Eliza Jane? The people all remark. They shout hi, hi, as she rides by the little doggies bark. Oh, we all have pain when Eliza Jane goes cycling through the park. No more discuss unfolded, though her papa gently grieves. But baggy trousers hold them in their big pneumatic sleeves. For when you see the bloomers bloom, she sits a wheel astride. She makes a sight with copper fight, as in the park she rides. Oh, have you seen Eliza Jane cycling through the park? Have you seen Eliza Jane? The people all remark. They shout high, high, as she rides by. The little doggies cycling through the park. Thank you. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home of Carter H. Harrison II, who in 1897 became mayor with the slogan, Not the champion cyclist, but the cyclist's champion. This has been The Constant.